Edmonton. Stopped by Platt. Here's Steve Bold. And it's Adams. Put through by Bold. Would you believe it? That sums it all up. Hello and welcome back to the end of season rendition of That Sums It All Up. It's been a while since we've been back on the podcast. Arsenal-wise, that seems like quite a long time ago, talked about Arsenal. We ended the season strongly with wins against Chelsea, Palace and Brighton. I think we made that five in a row to finish the season. It was enough to see us finish eighth in the table. No European football, that will be a strange one next year, but perhaps it's not the worst thing in the world. Elsewhere, what else has been going on the football world? Well, Chelsea won the Champions League against Manchester City, underdogs. I suppose you could say the same for Villarreal in the Europa League too, beating Manchester United in a rather rather uh, epic penalty shootout by the end of things. We'll have a few words on both of those games and then we'll give us some reflections on uh, Arsenal season as a whole. We're going to do some end of season awards. And yeah, it should be a, a decent, decent little podcast and we'll talk about some transfer rumours as well. Plenty of stuff going on sort of uh, with the England squad and plenty of manager managerial changes and uh, exits and appointments. So lots to get our teeth stuck into today. So with us to wrap it all up, the 2020-21 uh, season. Well, I mean, it, it would be rude not to and uh, well, no one else will come on. So there's uh, Johnny Rosen. Hello, Johnny. How are you? I'm well. I'm well good to always know I'm the, the go-to backup option for the... <laughs> The, that sums it all up pod forever obliging to uh, to come on and share my knowledge with everyone Ooh, that listens to us people listening yeah, yeah, that yeah matters yeah but it's been good back in london now graduated obviously edinburgh i got a job that starts well i started like just under two weeks full time so taking a little holiday on Friday for a week and then it's to work but good keep busy also with the lack of football and I'm not I'm not super excited for the Euros I watched them but it's nothing too too entertaining but yeah it's it's been good how's everything been with you yeah things have been all right I think uh we've had uh I'm still up in Edinburgh of course and there's been some uh some difficulties with the old COVID-19 this weekend um i think just as more people are feeling more obliged and free to to meet up with more people and go out and socialize i think this sort of thing is inevitable especially when a lot of young people haven't been vaccinated so yes i think the message is to remain vigilant um that goes for me too uh but yeah thank you i'm sort of um keeping busy got quite a few things going on uh work and still got extra spanish and, and language courses to be getting on with uh in the off season um because obviously i'm back at edinburgh next next year but yeah like you i'm sort of i'm not too i'm excited for the euros but i think i'm not sure some people are definitely a lot more excited than and i think I'm not sure. I, th- I feel like a lot of people will probably feel a bit less excited because of how draining and, and tiresome maybe this season's been. And I think it's just finished and then we're on to the Euros straight away. I don't know what your thoughts are and where, why maybe you're not so excited about the Euros, um, but that's sort of where I'm coming from. I mean, I'm sure I'll watch plenty of the games and, and get quite into it, but I think maybe the spirit of like a championship like that, you sort of imagine 
a very liberal sort of social aspect of it. And I think still maybe that's not entirely possible. Um, but look, it's exciting. There'll be more football on for people to watch. Um, well, while we're on it then, let's, uh, let's talk about the England squad because uh, Gareth Southgate, what is he? He released a, th- was it a 33 man last Tuesday? 33. Yeah, and then cut it to obviously 26. So cut yeah. six, seven, seven players out. Yeah, and we were, I mean, Arsenal fans were anticipating that perhaps Bukayo Saka would, uh, would not be in the final 26, but he has been called up, which I think we can be very proud of. I know there's some people who are yeah. less encouraged by that and would rather him have a rest, but what do you think about Bukayo Saka's call-up to the England squad? Uh, I was surprised he made the final cut. I thought he would probably um, have been sent back packing. I think we were in a situation where it was a, it, either situation was a positive. If he gets into the squad like he has, then that's brilliant. He's 19. He's the second youngest player in the squad after Drew Bellingham. And he's had a very good season. I actually think, and I'm sure we'll get onto this later, when we talk about kind of the Arsenal season review and player of the season and young player of the season, for me, he wouldn't be my player of the season uh, because I think he did fade quite a lot in the second half of the season, but he did also carry us at times sort of recognition. And the, the call-up is is very good. Uh, it's a good confidence boost for him. And it kind of is a landmark point at 19 to be put into the squad. And had he not been put into the squad, it wouldn't have really mattered too much because then he would have got the rest, which he definitely will need at some point, whether that comes after the Euros. I, A lot of people are very uh, optimistic about this England squad. I personally can't see us doing, you know, getting to the latter stages of this competition. Who knows? So I think he'll definitely get his rest between now and kind of mid-August when the season starts. Uh, just will be when that is but yeah in general I don't know what were your thoughts on the squad pretty pretty good squad yeah I, th- I think so um, I look with Bukayo Saka I don't think I don't know how much exactly he'll play at the Euros but I think yeah he'd ha- he's had his properly sort of breakthrough season and I think it is a reward for for playing so well and consistently and yes he did fade towards the end but I think that was inevitable. We were just playing him too much and perhaps when we didn't really need to. But I think we should be really proud of him. I think his confidence will go through the roof. He's also, you know, most English teams have quite a few players representing them at the Euros and we don't have that many actually uh, from from across the nations. We've got Leno for Germany. He won't play really. I think Jacka, a couple more and then obviously Saka. So I think... It's a really positive thing. Like you, I think he will need a rest at some point, but hopefully they will maybe use this as more of an experience and and not sort of work him too hard. Um, and maybe he can contribute. I mean, that would be great. You know, imagine him sort of coming on and making an impact for England in the Euros. That would be a very proud moment, I think, for Arsenal fans. But yeah, apart from that, I mean, Trent Alexander-Arnold got called up along with, what was it, three other sort of uh, stereotypical right-backs, which I think was a bit of a surprise because I think a lot of people thought he wouldn't make the final cut given that he was left out previously. 
But apart from that, there weren't really any surprises. I noticed Nick Pope didn't make the cut, but I think he was having surgery, so that's why he's not there. Yeah, he's injured, I'm pretty sure. Good, good, good choice of right backs, though. We've got, you know, I think that could probably be our best back four. Just go Trippier, who can play as a right back or a left back, maybe on the left. Then we put a few other right backs at centre back, and then Trent as the traditional right back. Not bad as a, as a back four, I think. But it looks as if it could be a, it could be he could be gearing up for a back a back three or five, depending on how you look at it, and wing backs perhaps, given the amount of fullbacks he's bringing and. Yeah. You know, there aren't too many central midfielders and there's also, you know, doubts about the fitness of Henderson, maybe Calvin Phillips as well, so. Yeah, I, I wonder if Trent will actually get some minutes in midfield. I think he's technically uh, and tactically good enough to be a midfielder. And I wonder if part of his inclusion was actually um, we was for Southgate to, and, and look, I don't know because Southgate's not a very adventurous manager, but maybe putting him in midfield for a great game and seeing how it goes um, could be an option, especially because we've got, I think, 10 defenders out of in the 26 um, and, and, and a kind of five midfielders, a few who are kind of flagged. Mm. Um, so that would be an interesting addition to the, to the squad and tactically quite innovative if we went that way. But no, it was good. No Mason Greenwood either. I think he's also got an injury. So yeah. that firmly cements Saka as a better player than Greenwood, <laughs> in my mind, <laughs> in, that, in that contest. I mean, at the moment, a lot of people who I've, who I've been listening to, are, you know, they're giving their ideal starting front three. And funnily, interestingly enough, you know, a few years ago, you'd say Sterling and Rashford are shoe-ins. And at the moment, based on current form in adverted commas, then they probably wouldn't be. And you'd have maybe San- Jaden Sancho and Phil Foden either side of Harry Kane. But it'll be interesting to see it's such great options. And Jack Grealish as well, sort of on the bench too, perhaps. Yeah. So loads of options. And I guess it is quite an exciting squad when you look at the, the fullback areas and the forward areas. It's just whether the rest of the squad is good enough. But look, I don't want to... Don't want to dwell too much on on England because I'm sure everyone's sort of thinking and talking about that at the moment. So yeah, there's been quite a quite the managerial merry-go-round um, thus far in the summer. We've had Antonio Conte leave Inter Milan. We've had Zinedine Zidane leave uh, Real Madrid. Uh, Carlo Ancelotti to replace him from Everton. Uh, Andrea Pirlo has been sacked from Juventus. Massimo Allegri is back there. Obviously, even before then, we had Jose Mourinho sort of announced as the new Roma boss. Nuno Espirito Santos left Wolves. Could he be in line to replace someone maybe at Everton? Pochettino has been mentioned as perhaps maybe not being too enamoured with the PSG job. So, I mean, you mentioned just uh, just before we were talking about where this all started. And I think Antonio Conte, he just won the league with Inter Milan and they were in disagreement, I think, the fact that COVID had, had uh, affected Inter too much. They were looking to sell a substantial number of players to raise funds. Conte was having none of it left. Um, and now he's in Spurs. So, yeah, what are your thoughts on, on sort of all the managerial changes and, and what's, go- what's been going on? Uh, it's, it's really interesting. I think, as, um, as we were kind of saying off air, it kind of all kind of emanated from Italy and 
in Serie A with, um, with Pirlo leaving Juve as well, who's fired. Allegri's coming to replace him. Inter, Mourinho going into Roma, Inter firing Conte, uh, then Inter getting the Lazio manager. And that's led to quite a few vacancies and I think a lot of people thought Real Madrid would um, move for Conte after Allegri filled the Juventus position. And then they, out of nowhere, really snapped up Ancelotti uh, and re-signed Ancelotti from Everton, which has now meant that there's a few vacancies in the Prem. Now, Wolves are managerless, Palace are managerless, Everton are managerless, Spurs are managerless. So Spurs now looking at Conte because it looks like PSG are holding firm on Pochettino. Nuno Espirito Santo is a very good manager. We've all seen how well he's done on Wolves over the past three years, got them to a Europa League quarterfinal last season with a very uh, small squad. And I think he is now favourite to replace Ancelotti at Everton. Um, Palace, we don't know who's going in there. Wolves, we don't know who's going in there, likely to be uh, someone, you know, Portuguese with connections to George Mendes. Mm. But yeah, it's really it's really interesting, and and the big positions, the Juventus position, the Inter position, and the Madrid position have all been filled. But it's now the ripple effect that that's having on other jobs, and the the real kind of impact it leaves on me is what you know, that sort of what if you know if we moved on from Arteta at some point, who would we get our hands on? I think we saw how well Chelsea have done to ditch a, you know, a club legend, record goal scorer, uh, rookie coach in the ilk of Frank Lampard and move for, a, you know, a really quality elite coach uh, in Tuchel and completely changed that club's fortunes uh, for the better. Obviously, they won the Champions League, finished... They finished fourth, but I, I think next season the title race will very much be City and Chelsea going at it head to head. And and yeah, it's, it's interesting and it'll be interesting to see how these managerial vacancies uh, get filled over the next few weeks because doubtless teams will want to have that position sorted before they begin any transfer business uh, as, you know, for instance, with Spurs and Conte, we know how uh, specific he is and who he likes to sign and how he does his transfer dealings. But yeah, it's, it's been, it'll be interesting. And it's, you know me and I am football transfer news official. So it's all, it's all part of the summer window that I love to get involved with. But what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I mean, look, I wasn't surprised with the likes of, I wasn't surprised when Pirlo got sacked or left. It sounded like a sacking to me from Juventus. I wasn't surprised that Zidane left Real Madrid either. I wasn't surprised that Conte left. You know, he, he's a very intense guy. And even if he's just won something with Inter, for him, that would be, right, I want to build on it and spend some money. Whereas Inter have told him that's not possible. So I'm not surprised he left. What I was surprised about was Ancelotti going back to Real Madrid, maybe slightly lacking in, in uh, ambition or creativity. I don't know. Maybe it's the safe option. I mean, it's sort of, that's what it seems like from where I'm sitting. And yeah, to sort of see Ancelotti and Allegri go back to sort of where they were like five, six years ago is is a bit strange. I think your point on, on Arteta as well is, is quite interesting because 
we saw the effect that Thomas Tuchel had on Chelsea. Obviously, they've just won the, the Champions League and we'll get on to that. But, you know, what if Arsenal had done the same? Uh, what if, you know, some of these managers have similar effects on, on the clubs they're joining? But you'd like to think that there's a chance that maybe with a more settled manager and squad, well, I say settled squad, it's, it's far from it, but, you know, at least may, maybe an advantage is there to be had, the fact that Arteta's been there for a bit longer without having to get to know his players and uh, sort of do everything that a new manager does, especially against, you know, some of our rivals, i.e. Spurs, maybe Everton, um, Wolves. So, yeah, it is very interesting because these are sort of, I mean, I love it how I say those are our rivals, but in terms of the, the positions we're fighting for in the league at the moment. But, yeah, very interesting to see all these managers switching around and going to different places. And it's interesting to see the sort of the trickle-down effect, as you say, started in Italy and, uh, you know, the, the vacancies have yet to be filled at the sort of English clubs. And it looks as if Antonio Conte will be joining Spurs, which... I don't think many Arsenal fans will be too happy about because obviously he had a great record at Chelsea, won the league, and then even his second season, did he finish Did he finish fifth and won the FA Cup or something? Yeah, something well, he won the FA Cup in his second season. Yeah, and obviously he's done very well at Inter. He's a great coach. Harry Kane to stick around as well. But look, we, we'll see. And just, yeah, just we were talking about Chelsea. Let, let's quickly have a few words on the, on the Champions League final. Um, obviously, Chelsea ran out 1-0 winners. I think it was deserved. I don't think City did enough, um, actually. And Chelsea were comfortable. Uh, it seemed, it's a while ago. So was, you know, it's, Actually, no, it wasn't a while ago. It was on Saturday that I watched it. But um, what were your thoughts on the game? It was, a, it was a better game than I was expecting it to be. I think we saw... You know, the champion, the it's not the Champions League, the FA Cup semi final uh, was really the litmus test for this game. I know they obviously played each other in the league, but that was quite a weird game. And City were playing half the squad. And, um, and I think a lot of fans that I spoke to, Chelsea fans, City fans, and neutral fans alike, were, were quite apprehensive that the, the Champions League final would also mirror that in terms of being quite closed, very defensive. Uh, and quite slow in terms of the tempo. And I think we saw immediately in the Champions League final that this wasn't going to be anything like that. And it was played at 100 miles an hour. The the lineup that City went with was probably conducive to that. Uh, I, you know, going without Rodri or Fernandinho or both uh, starting. And I think it was their, you know, the biggest mistake they made was going without one of those players who... You know, it was the first time ever I was speaking to a City fan the other day, and that was the first time ever that those 11 players had started a game together. He sometimes gets things wrong, and it's too kind of oversimplified to just say, oh, well, he overthought it. But I do think that the lineup was was just a bad, bad lineup, and he made a mistake there. And, and Chelsea looked really solid. I think they started a bit shaky, and then after kind of the first 15, 20 minutes, they looked to be in control. And, you know, look, City had one shot on target all game. So when you limit your opposition to just a, a sole uh, shot a goal, the odds are you're, you're going to win that game. Mm. Yeah, I, I didn't have... I mean, yeah, I had an issue maybe with... Or I was surprised the fact that neither Fernandinho or Rodri started. I mean, I no problem with the sort of front three, the back four... The goalkeeper, obviously, they sort of pick themselves, but to sort of unbalance maybe the side that, you know, was so good against PSG and 
at times has blown their opponents away this season to then go with something completely different on the biggest of occasions. You know, that the attacking players just didn't really seem to gel. Um, I know obviously De Bruyne, Kevin De Bruyne went off injured early, uh, but you know, they, none of them had really had too much of the ball. There were a few half openings and Chelsea were just getting through them very easily. So many times, well, not so many times, but on more occasions than we're used to, you know, we see Werner and Havertz being played through in behind, no one cutting and cutting those passes out. And I think, yeah, Guardiola probably, I mean, I don't think he'll regret that because that's not his his game, but they didn't do enough even with the players on the pitch. And I think they would have, um, yeah, Chelsea deserved it, unfortunately. And I think for Arsenal fans, that's an entirely different thing. Uh, I think we would have felt more comfortable with Manchester City winning it, perhaps just because we're a bit closer to Chelsea, but now Chelsea seem even further away and we can see what is Kate, what is possible when you have a, a very rich owner who invests in the club and is a bit more ruthless than perhaps executive structure, uh, new manager, you know, they've got some great players. And I think that is the difference between maybe Chelsea and Arsenal sort of compare, oh, well, if we had got Thomas Tuchel or made a managerial change mid-season, then it could have been very different and it might have been, but Chelsea have got a lot, they've got better players than us. They've got a lot of a more balanced, better squad, experienced players who have won things, you know, some of the best young, young talent in the world. And I think, yeah, it's probably easier for, for them to, yeah, change managers because they've built a squad that, that can, it's, it's not so reliant on a managerial appointment. So, that was the that was the Champions League final, and then let's quickly move on to the Europa League final, um, which was a week ago today. Villarreal won the Europa League. Obviously, they knocked us out in the semi final. They beat Manchester United in a penalty shootout. Uh, David de Gea missed, I think it was the twenty second penalty or something like that. Crazy. Um, why? Some people were feeling or were feeling a bit uh, annoyed because. Clearly, United maybe weren't all that by the end and Villarreal clearly weren't all that, but they executed the plan well. I was just happy to see Manchester United lose, uh, I think. Yeah, no, I think it's a bittersweet result for Arsenal fans because Emery seems to have the Midas touch wherever he goes in the Europa League, with one exception, which is Arsenal, where he gets to a final and just gets completely um, trounced. Uh, I was there in Baku and it was not a fun 90 minutes. No. But everywhere else, he seems to just excel. And I and he is, I think, he's a very good manager in Spain and with Spanish teams. And getting rid of him, him with the right decision. And most Arsenal fans, I feel, would also still hold that uh, line of opinion. But he did really well to to beat United. They definitely came into that final as you know big underdogs. But Emery's used to um, going into Europa League finals as underdogs. They beat Liverpool in the Europa League final at Seville when they were underdogs, and United were pretty poor. And uh, it was it was a, again a pretty entertaining game. I think the penalties were just incredible. I mean Francis Cockerman putting his penalty top bins. Was the was the highlight for probably me and most other Arsenal fans, along with De Gea uh, missing it. And it was funny that De Gea faced twelve shots on target, 
in that game if you include the penalty shootout and conceded 12 goals. <laughs> yeah, it, it wasn't the most exciting, you know, uh, 90 minutes and then extra time, but the penalty shootout was was an excellent watch. All the penalties were such high quality. Um, I felt very tense by the end because you had players like young players from Manchester United stepping up and taking a penalty. You know, we've obviously seen sort of what can happen on social media, the abuse that some players get. And I just, I was, I was fearing for these players to sort of hold their nerve and, and score and, and all of them did. And I think, yeah, it was uh, well-deserved from Villarreal. Again, it was more of a case of maybe Manchester United not doing enough and Villarreal doing what they needed to do, which is sort of what they did, Villarreal did against us as well. So they deserved it in the end. And I think also, you know, in light of the Super League and that kind of thing, I think, well, how refreshing to see one of a, a, a traditionally quite big European team, but not part of the elite at the moment, sort of have the capacity to win a, a trophy at the expense of, well, Arsenal, Manchester United, who, uh, well, you know, we have our issues with our with our with the way in which our clubs are run, both sets of fans. I want to get into some transfer stuff, just... We'll, we'll finish. We'll finish with that sort of a, in a bit, but let's uh, let's swing it back to the Arsenal, uh, the Arsenal orientated side of things. Obviously, the season's end. We finished eighth in the end, and having crashed out of the Europa League in the semi-final stage, we went on to win our final five Premier League games. And you know, at the end of the season, all these. Uh, sort of or league table since Smith Rowe made his debut for Arsenal this season or league table since New Year or Boxing Day and you know we, we finished in the Champions League places we're sort of third only to, to Manchester United and Manchester City in terms of you know points accumulated um, mm. the underlying metrics I think some of them are still not quite as high as where we'd want them to be I think we're still you know sort of mid-table in terms of chances created that sort of thing but it obviously did get better uh, in the second half of the season, bar the sort of disappointing uh, Villarreal incident. I think it was just a case of giving ourselves too much to do, but we obviously didn't qualify for the for any European competition. I think it's a nice wake-up call, I think, for, for the club. Um, you can't just get away with it and sort of expect to be in European competitions. You have to earn it consistently over the course of a season. And to do that, you need to build your squad properly, manage your players and you know, run your club properly. And hopefully we're going to start doing that. But I just want to, let's uh, let's run through sort of what we what we think, yeah, what we think about the season in terms of what we thought the best player was, the young players. So we'll do some sort of uh, discussions about the awards that we'd be giving. Who's your player of the season? Because you mentioned it wouldn't be Bakaya Saka. So I think a lot of people would, probably, he probably will win the official player of the season. But well, I think... My player of the season might. I'm leaning towards it's either Kieran Tierney or Granit Xhaka. Um, I just think Tierney, when he was fit, was so clearly the, you know, epitomizes kind of the arsenal that we love and want to see. That's uh, why there's been so many calls to make him captain, and he offers so much offensively and defensively. 
and I I I think he's yeah, right up there with the best left backs in the league, maybe even Europe. And Xhaka, I thought um, you kind of have to look at Xhaka pre-Burnley red card and then post-Burnley red card. Xhaka was was our best player in the season. And you, when he dropped into left-back for those five games, you saw how much he was missed. And then when he was moved into central midfield again, we we won our last five games of the season, and which is something we hadn't done I don't think we'd won five Premier League games in a row for about three and a half years. So, yeah, I, it's a controversial take, uh, but I would have to say Xhaka is my player of the season this season. I don't know. I mean, who would yours be? Look, I think the considerations that you have to take, who was our, who was our top goal scorer? Uh, Alexandre Lacazette. I don't think he did enough or was consistent enough to say that he deserves to be our player of the season. Yes, he scored quite a few goals in a chunk of time and at the beginning of the season, but he was really out of form pretty much until the turn of the year and fell out of favour towards the end uh, with the Bamiang sort of coming back to full fitness. So I don't think you could give it to him. Tierney, I think consistency-wise, was probably our most consistent player and I can see the argument. But I think, you know, he missed probably over 10 games in, in the league. And we missed him dearly and something just, something makes me hesitate when someone that has missed sort of, you know, 10 games plus, it's quite a, quite a number of games to miss. But having said that, look, I think Bukayo Saka, he did, he did uh, run out of steam, I think by the end, but I think he, I think it it's more difficult to to not give him the player of the season award just because he's been so sort of uh, important to the way we've, you know, the good parts of our season. I mean, there'd also be a case to sort of give it to Neil Smith-Rowe because actually pretty much since he arrived, in terms of his consistency, I think that's an also a very good, there's a very good argument to, make, to be made to say that he might deserve it. But I don't think the Arsenal fans probably unanim- unanimously agree on that. So look, if you had a, I don't think there's an obvious choice because I don't think anyone was obviously consistent enough to to sort of take the take the Player of the Year award like Aubameyang was last year, for example. If you had to, if I had to give him my answer, it would probably be Saka, just because of the the way in which he he held himself, his age, and that kind of thing, and the sort of, especially in comparison to a lot of the other attackers. I think who maybe didn't pull their weight for lots of the season. Saka was there throughout, uh, played yeah. in position. So, look, I can see why people might be slightly hesitant to give it to him, but I think he will win you know, the official Arsenal Player of the Year award, and that's probably who I'd give it to. Young Player of the Season would also qualify for that, but I suppose Emil Smith Rowe would be up there in terms of considerations for that, just because of the impact he's had since Christmas. And um, yeah, so let's move on to signings then. Best signing, and then we'll do worst signing for you. Best signing, oh, it's tough. You'd probably want to say Gabriel or Thomas Partey, but neither of them actually had very complete, sort of consistent seasons. It's quite, it feels too early to judge them, really. Yeah, I mean, Odegaard honestly comes to mind for me. I think, 
it's harsh not to give it to Gabrielle or party. I, the thing with parties, I don't really know, really honest, I don't know what I expected from him or what we expected as a fan base. But I think he's shown in certain games how good he can be. Most of those games have come next to either Xhaka or Elmeni. Certainly none came when it was with Ceballos. Um, And I think... I'll say party... I'll say party just maybe, but I would also give Odegaard a brief bit of... um, attention and actually say even if he doesn't come back next season I would go as far as saying Odegaard has been our most successful ever loan signing mm. uh, in my lifetime or that I can remember going mm. kind of going all the way back to Yossi Ben Ayou probably who had a very good season at Arsenal uh, in that one season when he was signed from Chelsea and I think since then We've had a number of loan signings who haven't worked out. You know, Dennis Suarez is an obvious one. Kim Chalstrom, another one. Ceballos uh, is this season and last season. If you put them together, it doesn't look for brilliant reading. Yeah, and I, the only thing I'd say... I really good. Yeah, I think Odegaard has been great as well. Uh, it was a shame that he got injured when he did because it sort of put, put a stop to the momentum that was building when he first came into the team. He really did... He really did suit the team and, and sort of take the team by the scruff of the neck. And it was his it was his attack. It was his team for a period of time. But again, I guess it's difficult to judge the best signing because none of them have perhaps made the impact in terms of the end result that that makes it successful, if you know what I mean. For example, like you could perhaps make the argument last year that you know Sabios was pretty pretty important in our in our run to the FA Cup final and therefore constituted as quite a successful loan signing. Um, I think we were all very keen for him to rejoin on loan, given the strong end that he had to the season last time out. So, yeah, I mean, it's, who's impressed this season? It's a real tough one. I mean, it certainly wouldn't be Willian. I think he's, he's most people's worst signing. I, I don't think there's a debate about that and we don't need to dwell on it because I think that's just how it is. But... Best signing, I'd probably still give it to Gabriel just because he did start the season quite strongly. And then I think he got lost in sort of our downward spiral and, and arguably one of the worst periods ever. And I think yeah, happened. And, you know, he scored a couple of goals, important goals. And yeah, so I'd give it to him. And, and Thomas Partey, not far behind. I think, you know, he was, he was hamstrung by injuries and fitness issues and sort of not being played with the right people. So I think that's where I'd go for that. In terms of uh, games, in terms of games, do you have a best and worst game in mind? Best and worst. Before we do that, I'll briefly touch on worst signing of the season. <laughs> uh, for me, it's not Willian, it's Runison. Um, I just think that was an idiotic signing. I, at least the Willian signing... He didn't work out, but you could actually make some sense of it. He had a good season with Chelsea last season. Technically, he was our top assist maker um, or provider in the Premier League this season. Yeah, I, I, I want to be a bit different. I'm going to give Jack a player of the season, sure. although that gives me quite an easy one to give Saka a young player of the season. 
Mm. And um, and I would actually give it's very. It's, I'm not going to say it's not close, but I think Runison, he's got to be for me my worst, the worst signing of the season. I mean, like I just it, it doesn't it doesn't even make sense why we signed him. There, mm. there were other players we could have signed as easily as as we signed him and the William deal, at least on paper, you could have made some arguments in favour of it. Um, yeah, uh, games of the season. I agree. Just oh, on, you go, you go, yeah. On that, I just think Runison was obviously a, a signing that shouldn't have happened and maybe Bernd Leno would have benefited from some more competition. But actually, if I think about it, Bernd Leno probably had a lot... Of, his, sec- his first half of the season was a lot stronger than the second half. And we sort of dealt with the Runison issue by signing Matt Ryan on loan, um, and at which point Leno's form sort of deteriorated. So I don't know if Runison, obviously as a signing, it was stupid, but I don't think it had an impact, a negative impact on the team. Whereas I think, look, I understood where we were coming from trying to sign Willian, but it was really quite devastating to see what it did for maybe Nicola Pepe's confidence, our sort of the whole atmosphere around the way in which we want to play and who's Arteta trusting in. It's not all on Williams. You know, it's not all Williams' fault, but I think there's no way of of sort of justifying that he, or going against the idea that, that Willian wasn't the worst signing, just the way in which he contributed to things, but then also how it affected the team and the fans and the performances as well. And we really needed someone to step up and, you know, do what maybe Pepe's done recently, sort of, Try, try things and provide a spark. And I know Pepe had poor games at points, but I don't think he had the platform or the trust at the beginning of the season to, to sort of, um, you know, to, to impress during that period. So I think Willian has to be the worst signing of the, of the season. Um, but yeah, go on to your best and worst games. I, I forgot about the, the amount of playing time Willian stole from Pepe. Well, not uh, and that it was given. Well, stole it, in my opinion. Mm. Uh, Arteta or Arteta and William kind of combined forces to take it away from Pepe. And uh, and yeah, no, forgotten about. I did forget about that. So yeah, William, worst signing of the season. Closely followed by Runison. <laughs> Games of the season. I'm trying to think what game I enjoyed the most. I think the game I actually enjoyed the most was beating United at Old Trafford. Yeah, I was actually going to say that one. Um, just because I remember watching Adley Bayor score the last time we beat them at Old Trafford. And I remember I remember exactly where I was 15 years uh, since we beat them in the Premier League away from home. Mm. Just like the sense of relief to an extent but also just enjoyment and, and you know how pleased I was with that victory and it was six games into the season and it came at a time where we yes we'd lost to Liverpool and we'd lost to City already but we could still you know there was still like the sense of well what if we we kick on from here we've beaten United at Old Trafford what if we I think our next game was Leicester which we which we lost narrowly or that it was the Villa game but we had we did have a favourable run of fixtures coming up, and obviously those fixtures ended in kind of seven games without a point or seven games with a, with one point. But I just was th- I thought at that period of the season it was really 
there was a lot of optimism around the club. And a lot of people say the Chelsea game, uh, because it kind of came out of nowhere and it was unexpected, the 1-0 win at Old Trafford was, was my game of the season. Mm. Yeah. What about you? Yeah, I think in terms of, you know, we hadn't beaten, as you said, beaten United for a long time at Old Trafford. We hadn't broken our hoodoo of not winning away from home at one of the top six for, I think it was like 20, 20 plus games. That was the first time we did it. You know, we'd had a few losses in the bigger games and it was a, it, I mean, maybe it, it was a false dawn in a way because I think the optimism from that game suggested that we were really capable of doing something. But, and Thomas Party had a great game and I think that was also what we were very excited about. But that was my most enjoyable sort of game, I think, in the moment, obviously in hindsight, probably not the most enjoyable. You know, the Chelsea game on Boxing Day, I think was great, but that was just such a surprise. I think that was more just a bit of a shock as opposed to enjoying it so much. But yeah, I think, you know, there weren't too many to choose from because we didn't have too many sort of great games and great results. A lot of them were frustrating and uh, and quite difficult, which is a shame. But I think the worst game which I'll, I'll just tackle first. I mean, obviously the Villarreal was, was terrible. I remember watching the Aston Villa game and losing 3-0 at home. And that really, really upset me. And it was one of the first times I really, I really questioned what we were doing and Arteta's capacity to manage and coach. And it really felt like that was something that, uh, yeah, would be difficult to come back from. They they completely embarrassed us at the Emirates, and you know, with Emmy Martinez in, in their goal as well, I I found that really difficult to take. What about you? Yeah, I think that one's definitely up there for me. And just to well, just to give a different game because I, I agree with everything you said about the Villa game. It was it was a really shocking performance. Um, for me, I have to say. On a par with that, but I'll just go for a different game. So we have a few in here. Mm. Is uh, would be the North London derby defeat um, mm. to Spurs, just because it was so obvious what was going to happen that game, and and we knew it, it's at that point Spurs were how you know Son and Kane were the whole of the Tottenham team, and we knew don't push up too high, don't give them the space in behind, don't let Kane drop off into the hole and spin and play the pass into Son. This game was similar because it was so so obvious how Spurs were playing and every pundit and fan and other coach could see what they were doing and and they weren't playing that well, but they had the two best players in terms of on form in the league at that point in time. And they just it was just the it was if it was, you know, when Mourinho's plans come off, they just come off very very well and 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 they went one nil up with a very good Son goal, and it was exactly like textbook how we expected it to kind of come off. And then they scored, you know, Son assisted Kane, and it was. And then they shut up shop, and and look, we put about seventy million crosses in. We don't have a Giroud type figure in the squad anymore, so nothing went near goal, and we lost two nil. And to go out and just perform so mediocrely and just just be just very, very average and obvious. Nothing was innovative about our performance. We gave up all the ground that we were, that was expected of us. It was, uh, it was just, yeah, 
again, it was very frustrating and also led to me having serious doubts over Arteta's managerial uh, ability at mm. the top level. Yeah, I don't think you could argue with that. And of course, that Spurs game, and there were a couple more, the Villarreal, there were some other performances in the Europa League as well, which were pretty dreadful. But mm. we'll leave that there. Look, I tell you what, we're, we're, we're slightly pushed for time. I just want to, let's talk quickly about uh, some transfers because obviously we've got Football Transfer News official on the opportunity to, to shed some light and sort of what Arsenal might be up to. So, I mean, as it stands, there's been a lot of talk that Granit Xhaka might be off to Roma to join Jose Mourinho. Arsenal are looking at the uh, the Ajax keeper, uh, Onana. Mm. With Leno perhaps interested in or not not interested in renewing his contract, it's largely accepted that Hector Bellerin might be off this summer. Lacazette perhaps too. The BIOS has obviously gone already with his loan finished. Erdegaard as things stand too. Obviously he's at number one top supposedly for this window. David Luiz retired, not retired. He's left as well. And then we've got so many sort of doubts about. Younger players, Joe Willock returning from loan, Ainsley Maitland-Niles, Eddie Nketiah and Reese Nelson sort of not getting a look in. Um, there's probably quite a few more who we're unsure about in terms of their future and we might be bringing in. But but where are you at with with Arsenal at the moment in terms of incomings and outgoings? What do you think might happen? Just just give us your, your, your inside intel. Yeah, no, I think with Arsenal at the moment, everything you've said really is spot on. Onana is definitely a keeper we're in talks with. He's a very good keeper as well. Uh, I think he would be a step up from Leno. And his whole issue is, obviously, there was the doping ban. Um, I think, I don't know the full story, but I think he accidentally took a pill or, you know, something that, yeah, he said it was a pill to do with his wife's pregnancy. He didn't realise he couldn't take it, had a banned substance. So it's all very template, but but he then by UEFA he appealed the decision to Cass uh, gave the I think he gave his side today and the Cass verdict should be out within a week and that will dramatically affect um, how we progress with um, trying to sign him I think if it all goes well I think he would be a very good keeper and I think it would spell the end for Leno to be honest because I could see a situation where Matt Ryan is made permanent and Onana's brought in as a Leno replacement. I would only assume, though, that we're moving very hard for Onana um, because we have suitors already lined up for Bern Leno, probably in Germany. Can I, can I just interject that? It's just across my mind. I mean, obviously things change within the space of a year, but... Is this not another sign of perhaps poor planning? And I know everyone's thought that the decision to sell Martinez last year was too good an opportunity to turn down. But if Leno's you know, he's getting to the last two years of his contract, obviously maybe you don't know at that point, but it just, again, is a, is a mark of maybe at least we're trying to deal with it now, signing a new keeper and selling Leno before he can run down his contract. If he's not going to sign a new one, that's what we have to do. But Again, you'd sort of avoid this issue if if perhaps you were smarter and you knew maybe that Leno wasn't going to sign the contract. You keep the guy who loves Arsenal and has performed so incredibly well for you for the last part of the season. I mean, sort of just came to my mind and, and maybe that's unfair because Leno, Leno's mind's changed or something. But yeah, 
it's encouraging to see that maybe if Leno's not interested in signing a new deal and we've approached him to do so and he's been like, no, then we're moving on to other targets and you can, you can get sold. I think that's what has to be done. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I, I completely agree to um, a full analysis of just how bad our transfer planning has been over the past X amount of years because that would be a very long and depressing conversation. Um, but no, I, I do agree with you. Uh, other outgoings, Xhaka is definitely uh, liked by both Mourinho and uh the kind of higher up positions uh Roma I think that deal is if the price is right it will go ahead I think there's an understanding that on Arsenal's behalf that he's served his time and I think you know we've seen his ceiling and he performed very well in the kind of second half of the season or kind of since Boxing Day player of the season. I, don't think, I don't think he could get much better than that and that's his best, and it wasn't it wasn't amazing. I think it was can admit that there are better players we could bring in, and if we can get a good amount of money for him, you know, north of say twenty million pounds, that would be a deal worth doing. Especially as he's approaching his thirties, and he was already not the uh, fastest player uh, in the squad. The incoming, well, re-incoming loan players, Maitland Niles, Willock. Saliba, Mavropanos as well. That will be interesting to see how we deal with them. I think, obviously, Willock's the most interesting one. Had an incredibly fruitful loan spell at Newcastle. Just won the Player of the Month for May Premier League Player of the Month and um, and is a homegrown talent as well. It would just, again, it's financial. If Newcastle have the money... Um, 25 million minimum to Newcastle. If another club who aren't a direct rival were also able to give 25 million pounds for Willock, then I don't see why a deal wouldn't go through. But again, in this market with the kind of COVID implications uh, in play, asking sort of low-end Premier League clubs to pay 25 million pounds or more for a Joe Willock it's a big ask and a lot of them uh, they've been impressed but they don't they don't necessarily have that cash or they have other priorities and Newcastle especially under Mike Ashley we've seen how they've been over the last few years in transfer windows they've definitely there's definitely been a willingness to spend more but still it would be a lot of money for, for Newcastle of all clubs other outgoings Mavro Panos staying at Stuttgart I think could be a fairly routine deal to do, assuming um, Arteta doesn't want to keep him this season. And Stuttgart had a pretty good, decent season on their return back to the Bundesliga. I think they finished eighth or ninth. Mm. Um, and yeah, incomings, incomings are quieter. Lots of links with Ryan Bertrand as well as a backup left back, which is a priority position. Mm. Uh, in tra- you know, we know we we like the look of Odegaard, and that's the number one priority. Also, Emi Buendia, but I think Aston Villa are very keen to sign Emi Buendia. And I would guess that if we faff about for too long, we might miss out on Buendia because um, I don't see why Villa couldn't get that deal done as well. I mean, look, we are definitely still a more attractive destination 
But both of us, I mean, both Arsenal and Villa will have the money to get that deal done. It's mm. just who moved first. And I think Villa are ahead of us in that race, from what I've heard. And me, Saliba will be the most interesting one. I really hope he's given a real chance to, to get minutes under his belt for Arsenal and kick on. But again, Arteta doesn't sound wholly convinced on him as a as our starting right centre back, whether that'll be holding or whether that'll be someone else coming in. I don't really know. But look, there's a lot of work to do. You know, I haven't even mentioned the kind of outgoings at right back, Bellerin, uh Gwenduzi, Torreira as well, the two people that I think won't we won't see in an Arsenal shirt again. I hear Gwenduzi is very close to a move to Marseille. Uh, I think that would be a positive move for all parties. Mm. And then, yeah, Enketia, Brighton are looking at Enketia as a West Ham. I think Welbeck has spoken quite highly of Enketia. Obviously, they shared a bit of time together at Arsenal, uh, overlap briefly. And it will be a very busy window, I think. But as is often the case, it drags on and it might not be resolved. You know, we might not see concrete resolutions until uh, August, but definitely a lot of developments that will keep us entertained over the next few months. Yeah, I, th- I think just, just to finish up there, I think it is clear that Arsenal, the state of Arsenal's squad is, I mean, it wouldn't be an over-exaggeration to say it's a bit of a joke in terms of how much there is with some of the younger players loan in like players returning from loan senior players who clearly aren't cutting the mustard anymore who are unable to support these younger players who don't want to renew their contracts I mean the churn is ridiculous and we've already started that but even players we thought might be here for a bit longer don't seem like they're going to be here longer so as you say there's so much to do and there'll be a lot of talk and it will go on all summer. So I'm sure if you want to get on top of everything, then you can go to uh, to Johnny's page. He is on Football Transfer News underscore official on Instagram uh, and Football Transfer News on Facebook. I think I've got that right. But I think we'll leave it there for today. A pleasure as always, Johnny. So thanks again for your time today and also throughout the season. Appreciate it. Thank you. No, thank you for having me on the pod. Debut season as well for the podcast so it's been a tough one but I think it's 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 also been good in in other ways especially with you starting up this podcast it's always been very cathartic and necessary at times indeed and uh hopefully look I'll, there'll be a few pods over the summer but the frequency of that will depend on sort of time and, and what's going on with football and Arsenal and we've also got the Euros to look forward to but I'll leave it there and just a quick reminder you can find every episode of That Sums It All Up on my Mixcloud page access all the shows via Twitter at AlfieSigner1 everyone stay safe enjoy the start to your summers uh, responsibly and as always thanks a lot for listening enjoy your week until next time take it easy bye